trees are an amazing solution for climate change. There can be a temperature difference of 13 to 17 degrees in one city from one neighborhood to another. And trees lower your utility bill, they clean the water, they store carbon, they cool the air. I mean, they're just superheroes. I'm your host, Adam Met, and today we're chatting with Kathy Bachman McLeod, the Senior Vice President and Director of the Adrian Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilient Center. After graduating from Florida State University, Kathy worked in several government and nonprofit organizations built to protect Florida's natural resources. Through that work, she was able to witness the ecology that is threatened by climate change. In 2007, she became the Deputy Chief of Staff to Florida's Chief Financial Officer, where she helped to create the first U.S. state treasury portfolio that accounted for climate risks. Today, as the Senior Vice President of the Arsht Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center, Kathy is educating people on how to stay resilient during the climate crisis. We talk about her experience in Florida's climate-related disasters, how climate insurance can rescue individuals, and the community-led efforts that her organization is funding around the country. A quick reminder that we're planting a tree for every person who subscribes to this podcast, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. And without further ado, here is Kathy Bachman McLeod on Planet Reimagined. Kathy, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. I'm really excited to talk to you about so many different topics. And if you are ready, we will just dive right in. I'm ready. Excellent. So you lived so much of your early academic and work life in Florida. You had a lot of firsthand experience of hurricanes and rising sea levels, as well as proximity to incredibly important environmental features like wetlands. So how did all of this affect your understanding of and your passion for working in the climate space? The first job that I had while I was in graduate school in Florida was with the Department of Environmental Protection on a federal transportation grant. And my job was to take what was then a giant GPS that you wore on your back with a big tall antenna and to map the environmentally degraded lands owned by the state of Florida. And you may know that it's 15 hours from Pensacola to Key West by car. So just to give you a sense of the vast nature and the differences of the ecosystems in a state that large, I got to traverse all corners of Florida and walk it, literally walk it or swamp buggy or golf cart or whatever kind of vehicle, and oftentimes on foot, and map these areas for what's called a mitigation bank. And the long and short of it is I got to really see and understand the ecosystems of Florida. And I had a biologist with me from the parks department or from the wildlife conservation to interpret what I was seeing. And it gave me a fantastic education about all that makes up Florida's natural world. And it was a great basis to understand what's at stake. Amazing. So for visual context, 
I know people have probably seen the Google Maps car driving around with the giant camera sticking up out of the top. Was that you? Were you the early But it was version? on my back and it was bright yellow wow. before you wow. could hold it in your hand. That is incredible. Yes. And it had great <laughs> accuracy. It did. It was, you know, triangulating to satellites and there's a photo somewhere, but it was quite an adventure. And you learn about how those properties got damaged. And a lot of times the state of Florida and their the economy is defined by development. And that means even how the state's revenue systems work, defined by development, and how those decisions are made. And at that point, of course, they were not climate informed in any way. But that love for for conservation and understanding what's at stake, it was at the base of my environmental and climate career. Amazing. So we're going to talk about a lot of different topics today, but I'd love to give the people listening a little bit of a baseline because there are some terms that we haven't really talked about yet on the podcast resiliency, adaptation, and we've already talked a lot about mitigation, but is it possible to run through these terms just to give people a baseline? So let's just talk about climate change right at the top. You know, it started out as global warming, and there was a move to take down the urgency of it by conservative voices in the U.S. I'm just going to talk about the U.S. for now, and to call it something less scary. So we'll call it climate change versus global warming, which sounds more menacing. So we call it climate change, and that's a big word. I mean, it could mean anything, and it's this big blob of what's in there. I mean, is that about burning coal? Is that about sea level rise? Is that about climate justice? Is that about miners being out of work? And so we at the Adrian Arsh Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center want to be really specific about what we're talking about. So climate change is describing what's happening, but inside there, there are two key themes. You've named them mitigation and adaptation. And mitigation means to stop doing something or to reduce the impacts of something. So if you want to mitigate the effects of climate change, stop emitting greenhouse gases that make the planet hotter. It's really simple. Stop doing it or store those gases. And there are different ways that we do that. One of the best ways is with nature. And so when you say mitigation, that's about the side that is about energy, burning coal, about fracking, where do the gases that warm the planet come from, and addressing them. So that's mitigation. And then adaptation is we have already warmed our planet to one degree centigrade above where it should be, given our burning of fossil fuels and other sources. And that means for 30 years, no matter what we do, the temperature rise that we have now will stay with us. So if we keep going in what we say, you know, BAU, business as usual, it will only get hotter. And that means hotter, bigger droughts, heat waves, hurricanes, more sea level rise, 20% of the earth will be uninhabitable, a lot of bad things. So we have to do both. We have to mitigate, but adaptation in the face of what we have now, it's not something that we're experiencing or talking about in the future. It's happening right now. And so we have to adapt to that. We have to be practical. We have to be realistic and see what we have. And two weeks ago, the International Energy Agency put out their annual report on emissions and the future of energy sources. And they said 2020 will be likely the biggest emissions in a decade of greenhouse gases. So for all of our discussions about reducing emissions, we are nowhere. We are not getting it done. That's a reality. It's a harsh reality. We're not getting it done. And what that means is we have to invest in protecting people 
and economies and places from the impacts of climate change. And that is adaptation. And so then let's talk about resilience. So oftentimes you see climate adaptation and climate resilience being used synonymously. And in some cases that works and in other cases it doesn't. And from our view, resilience is a personal trait. Resilience is something that our definition is you are better equipped to prepare for, withstand, and recover from shocks and stresses. So think about all the climate impacts. Heat is a shock and a stress. Slowly it's getting hotter. Nighttime is hotter. You know, that's when the body repairs itself. Sea level rise, slowly rising. Hurricanes are shocks. Heat waves are shocks. And so when we think about resilience, there's a spirit of resilience and there is a mental positioning of like, we'll get through this, we'll get through this. And you're resilient, but you have tactical things that you do to adapt. You put your house on stilts, you move back, you use sandbags, you put a green roof on top of your house, you paint things lighter surfaces so that they reflect heat instead of absorb it. And so that seems like a fine distinction, but when you think about resilience and adaptation, that's the way we see the difference and the similarities. They go together. That's a really nice Venn diagram there. That's incredibly interesting. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about on the podcast is the role of individuals. And I think having this concept of resiliency as something that's an individual outlook and an individual way of thinking about the climate crisis is really important. However, we also think, you know, there's the example of carbon footprint. And carbon footprint was a term that unfortunately was popularized by BP as a marketing term in order to put the onus on the individual to make changes in the climate space. Incredibly, incredibly powerful and strategic and perverted. Absolutely. So this resiliency almost seems like the countermeasure to carbon footprint because it allows people to build themselves back as opposed to saying, oh, this is my fault. I'm doing these things wrong when really it's the policy side and the business side that needs to be addressing these. The small actions, yes, in the aggregate end up making change, but that's a really interesting way of looking at resiliency. I really love that. Thank you for sharing that. You bet. And just one aspect of it too, we avoid very much the idea of resilience is just like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, big systems, big companies, government decisions way beyond the individual's level in developed economies have made these decisions that put people in developing economies in positions they had nothing to do with. So the idea of bootstraps, not talking about that, this is not their fault. This is not their responsibility. However, they still face what they face. They still have to you know, get up every day and try to find food and clean, drinkable water and all that sort of stuff. And so the mental health aspects, the self or community level pieces are a really strong component of resilience in our view. So we're talking a little bit about the difference between individuals and then larger scale changes. So a lot of the resiliency projects that you have proposed are local, but then they also have larger reaching effects. First, can you tell us about a few of the projects that you're working on and how important is it to build communities and support systems at that local level in addition to the help that may come from governments or larger organizations? 
Well, I think the pandemic has shown us this and we knew it beforehand, but it's been really reinforced. And that is that we will not be successful in adapting without building community and social cohesion. So those projects that are on the ground in communities are the most important thing that we can do. Yes, we need to replicate them and we need to have the scale so that more people more quickly have access to things that make them more resilient and prepared for what's coming. But the idea that a community comes together is the basis for success. There are lots of discussions about deploying capital and mobilizing investment into climate smart agriculture and into reforestation. And those words are meaningful. However, they have to land somewhere. And the projects that mean we're sequestering more carbon in trees or we are investing in things that make a community protected from storms or from heat or whatever it is, it's the community that does the work. It's the local economy that absorbs that financing and makes those things happen. And you cannot do that without a multi-stakeholder process. And that's one of the biggest and maybe harshest realities of mobilizing the kind of capital we need to, to be in the world we need to live in, to get near achieving our SDGs. And that means communities have to come together and they have to be involved in those solutions. So a couple of examples, one of them is it's so simple, but it's so effective. And that is kitchen garden kits. So in Chennai, we're partnered with Resilient Chennai and a group called Care Earth Trust. And we are distributing kitchen garden kits and lots of people don't have gardens. They don't have access to land. Land ownership is an issue, you know, all over. And so there's also a shortage of fresh fruits and vegetables in the nutrition of people, especially kids. When COVID came, the schools closed and the midday meal that the kids get as a part of their program was not available because they're not in school. And so kids were hungry. And so we pivoted quickly from a rooftop garden to a kitchen garden kit. And it's something you can take with you. It's something that doesn't take up much space. And it produces fruits and vegetables and lettuces and herbs in three weeks or less. And it's super effective. And it comes with technical assistance. Someone comes by to train you on how to take care of your garden kit. And we have found that to be really helpful. And that's improving the nutrition of kids. And you can put those all together on the top of an apartment building and cool the building and grow your plants at the same time. What's in this kit and how do I get one of these? <laughs> they're everywhere. I mean, there's there's seeds and a, a little bit of fertilizer, soil, and sometimes they're not even a pot. It's an actual sack. It's simple, but that's where we are right now. We need food. The food security impacts of COVID-19 are immense. And this is one of the clearest, easiest solutions. I love this. Okay, another example. These are so exciting. <laughs> another example is a converted shipping container. And shipping containers have been converted and used for things all over the world. We converted a shipping container with our partner from the Mediterranean Shipping Company Foundation. They donate a shipping container and we call it a resilience pod. And the pod is filled with location-specific risk info for a community. And it shares information about how to reduce your own personal risks. How can you be personally more resilient to what you're facing. Sea level rise or heat makes you aware of the slow onset illness that heat can bring without people's awareness. You know, heat is called the silent killer because it creeps up on you and it kills more Americans than any other climate-driven hazard. 
people are just not aware. And so this pod is wrapped in the art of a local artist from Miami. So it's arts and culture of the community. Inside it reflects climate champions and resilience champions from the Miami-Dade community working in all different parts of the community. And it provides free trees and their fruit trees. So again, food security. Most popular tree that we gave away was a mango tree and how to plant it and the website to go to to you know figure out if you're having trouble with your mango tree. And so that's another really local solution that we are working on. Amazing. So I first saw repurposed shipping containers when I was on tour in Austin. And I don't know if you've been to Austin, but they build full buildings and there are bars and restaurants completely made out of shipping containers. And I never thought about using that for something like this. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention is this is a perfect example of what you were talking about before, the multi-stakeholder approach. Because when I think about multi-stakeholders, and this is a lot of what I do in my academic work, bringing together indigenous communities and local NGOs and states and lawyers to work on large-scale human rights and development projects. But you brought in artists, which is a whole nother piece of the community that you never really think about when talking about climate change. What is that like? Is the art that's wrapped around these containers focused on climate, or is it just to highlight these artists? And what is their involvement? Well, this particular artist used the heat stripes the map of time over time that goes from blue to orange as the baseline. So that blue to orange is the backdrop of his art. And it has a message in it, of course, about climate, but it also has beautiful colors that reflect Miami and the culture there. And back to social cohesion, you know, the vision for these pods is that you'd have one in every community and it's a place where people gather to get information or give information or charge their phones. It's tricked out with solar and it can be a cooling station. And so you want to make it a physical place for, you know, for lack of a better term, resilience services. You know, where do you go to figure out what's going on in your community just for you and your neighbors? That's amazing. So there's one example that you haven't mentioned yet that seems to me like the easiest thing in the world. And I'm curious if it really does have an effect. And it's painting rooftops white. Oh yeah, super impactful, yes. Or if the roof is you know, structurally sound, putting plants on top of your roof. That's another really easy way. But painting it white, yes, that reflects instead of absorbs. And one of the most interesting things, it's called the diurnal range, you know, the difference between the temperature in the day and the temperature in the night. That range is getting smaller and smaller and smaller because of the urban heat island effect and because it's just hotter and all of the buildings and the surfaces and everything else are radiating heat at night. And so, you know, if you don't have air conditioning, that's when the body repairs and, you know, your brain gets cleaned out when you sleep. And if you're not sleeping well, kids don't learn well. I mean, there's all sorts of health impacts that come with it. But yes, that's a pretty easy solution. And then I just to talk about trees. Trees are an amazing solution for climate change. They're like the superhero of climate change. There's a fantastic program by an organization called American Forests, and they call this tree equity. And if you look at a community, where are people of color, where are people in low-income neighborhoods, they have so few trees compared to the wealthy neighborhoods. And this has been mapped, 
and now American Forest, who's a partner of ours in the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance, they are giving cities tree equity scores. And there can be a temperature difference of 13 to 17 degrees in one city from one neighborhood to another because of concrete and black asphalt and no trees. And, you know, when you call them a leafy suburb, we call them that for a reason, because they're wealthy and well canopied and cool. And trees lower your utility bill, they clean the water, they store carbon, they cool the air. I mean, they're just superheroes. This is such an incredibly important point, because I think when people think about trees, you think about the Amazon or you think about forests. And yes, of course, there are major problems going on in the Amazon and we are destroying a lung of the earth right now. But also to think about trees in urban environments and what it can do for bringing temperatures down. That's incredible. They also lower the admission rate to emergency rooms for asthma. Oh, wow. Because they're cleaning the air of pollution. And so there's just endless benefits. That's amazing because we talk about the sustainable development goals on here a lot. And we talk about how they're all interconnected and interrelated. And the fact that the goal about good health and well-being can be connected to forests, that's incredible. And just as a reminder for everyone who's listening, if you do subscribe to this podcast, we plant a tree. So it's really easy. We plant a tree with one click. (laughs) That's so great. What kind of tree do you plant? We plant indigenous trees to specific areas. So we work with an amazing organization called Trees for the Future, which takes the forest garden approach. So it goes in and it educates local communities about how to take care of the trees that are being planted. They can use the fruits that are born from the trees. They can consume them or sell them. And it's really important, like you were saying before, to engage local communities and all of the stakeholders. I've seen these drone approaches to trees where they just send out a whole bunch of seeds and Maybe they'll grow to maturity. Maybe they won't. That's not doing what we need it to do. So we did a lot of research to make sure we're finding the right approach to tree planting. That is really wonderful. So you touched on it a little bit before, but one of the biggest climate effects in the world today is heat. And there's so much being done around heat. Can you talk a little bit about what's being done and why this is such a problem? Because, you know, I'm in, I don't know, northern Canada, don't see heat as a problem. Why is that something that I should care about? Well, heat, as I said, is killing more Americans than any other climate-driven yeah. risk. And that's because we have the data. So in all the other places, we don't have the data. And places least prepared for heat and accustomed to it are the most at risk, in large part because their buildings are not built for air conditioning or airflow. They don't wear clothes that are meant to be cooling. And Heat on one body in one place is a different impact on a body in another place. So somebody in Bakersfield, California is going to have a very different feel from somebody in Olympia, Washington. And so we have formed with a big group of multi-sector leaders around the world, an organization called the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance. And that is intended to reduce the risks and impacts of heat to vulnerable people around the world. And we just launched with the mayor of Miami-Dade County last week, the world's first chief heat officer. That's Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava of Miami-Dade County. She was joined by the mayor of Freetown, Sierra Leone, and the mayor of Athens, Greece. And they have announced their chief heat officers and their heat health task forces. We're also working alongside the Heat Alliance to pilot heat wave naming and ranking the way that we name and rank tropical storms to build a culture of preparation. 
because this risk, as we don't seem to be able to control our emissions, will only increase. And it doesn't affect people equally. People in low-income communities, people of color, are the most impacted. And so I have a hypothesis that this will be the number one financial risk of climate change within five years. Wow. So something else that I want to talk about is climate insurance. Can you give a hypothetical situation in which climate insurance would kick in? So from what the disaster would look like to how the final distribution of funds would work? Because I know, you know, something like flood insurance is really difficult to get paid out in certain areas. So what does climate insurance look like as a whole now? Well, first, I would say I think insurance is amazing. I love insurance. (laughs) And when I worked for the Florida chief financial officer, I fell in love with insurance as a solution for climate change, as an approach, not a commercial product, not the Geico lizard and the woman in white. Flow. (laughs) And climate insurance means a lot of different things. And without giving your listeners too much, maybe more than they want to know about insurance. But trust me, it's super exciting thinking about insurance at different levels, individual insurance. So is micro level insurance. There's mezzanine insurance. There's macro insurance policies that are meant for whole countries or the whole state of Florida or a neighborhood association. You know, there are different levels of the insurance and then there are different kinds of insurance. And so there's one type of insurance that is proving to be really useful for addressing climate impacts. And it's called parametric insurance. Para meaning by, metric meaning measure. So most insurance pays out after something happens. And if you have a a tree falls on your car, they will assess how much damage is done to your car and then they will take a while and they will pay you. Parametric is not about the damage, it's about an event. And so the event in this case, and I have one specific example, when I worked for the Nature Conservancy, we created an insurance policy on a coral reef. And so a stretch of the Mesoamerican reef between Cancun and Tulum is currently insured. And it's insured based on its ability to break waves and protect the $10 billion tourism economy of the region. And so if the reef is threatened by too many storms that break the corals off and they can't grow back in time, plus overfishing, plus pollution and people doing harm when too many tourists come and see it, it needs help to continue to break the waves. And so you can, with science, you can say this reef in this condition in a category three hurricane is preventing $422 million of damage to this set of hotels and restaurants, et cetera, on the beach and the jobs of the people that live in the community. And so we partnered with Swiss Re, which is a reinsurance company, and we before the heat wave comes, before the storm comes. And so much more to talk about there, but insurance also is used for individuals. And so one example is the Kenyan Livestock Insurance Program. Farmers had insurance, they get paid to their cell phones, but the payout came after the cattle died because of a drought. And so Swiss Re and the Kenyan government and others got together and said, this isn't working. Why can't we bring money before they die? And so they came up with a way to use remote sensing to assess the level of hydration in the vegetation that the cows eat. And when it drops to a certain level, the farmer gets paid. 
And so he or she can get water and food to their cattle and you avoid the financial loss, the trauma of losing your herd. And it's a great solution and it's right there to their cell phone. And so insurance is a great tool. Wow. That is incredible. I knew none of this information and I'm curious if people want to learn more and get more of those nitty gritty details that we're not really going to go into today, where should they go to find out more information about climate insurance? I wrote an essay for Foreign Affairs about this, and we are at www.1billionresilient.org. And that is because we've pledged to reach a billion people with resilient solutions to climate impacts. Fantastic. Okay, I want to jump into a little bit more about you because you've done so many different things, EPA, Nature Conservancy, government positions, and then Bank of America before you came to the Atlantic Council. And one of these things is not quite like the other. So I have a couple of questions about this, but what was attractive to you about working at Bank of America because you've been in both the public and private spaces? And what do you feel each of their roles are in combating the climate crisis? What I would say is I would go back to the same concept of the stakeholder environment, multi-stakeholder, and we will not reach these goals without the private sector and specifically the financial services sector. They're financing the world as it is. And deploying capital, which is absolutely essential for us to deploy it in the right direction, that means that the banks are understanding climate risks of their own portfolios. So Bank of America has $7 trillion in assets under management, one of the biggest banks in the world, and deploying capital into things that are good for the planet. That's low and zero carbon. That's things that protect biodiversity and nature. Those are things that are informed by social risk and gender and vulnerable people and people of color. And so all the things that are currently externalities when you think about a valuation system in the financial system. And so deploying capital in the right direction is one of the biggest levers that we have. And when I was in government and in the nonprofit sector, I knew that there was more to learn about the way that a financial institution or big corporation operates. And I had before consulted with companies and had companies as my clients, but before I went to business school, I really didn't understand all the levers and the pressures and that, you know, this idea of stakeholder capitalism, that shareholders don't have primacy. In our system, they do have primacy. And so quarterly earnings reports, there's pressure and incentives on bankers that mean certain behaviors. And if you're not incentivized in the right direction to invest in the right things, and that, that means you need policy to support it. This is where the multi-stakeholder environment comes in. And so when I worked for the treasurer slash chief financial officer of Florida, we were the first treasury in the U.S. to formally disclose climate risk publicly in the treasury. And so I've been thinking about for a big climate risk exposed state financially. And when I was recruited to go to Bank of America, it was an opportunity to take that to another level. You know, I was doing that for the state of Florida. This would mean a global bank with those kinds of assets. And it would allow me to really understand the climate risk and climate opportunity that exists. And there is another thing, it's called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Here's what it means. It means that it's a voluntary 
set of recommendations for companies to disclose their climate risk. And if you own a fleet of diesel vehicles and a policy changes for electric vehicles only, your shareholders are exposed because you haven't disclosed that. You need to know where the climate risk is. Or if you have hotel properties all along the East Coast and you have subsidence and sea level rise, you have potential for stranded assets and shareholders need to know that. And so companies and banks are disclosing. And so I had the privilege of writing the first report for the bank's climate risk and what an education it was. And so you can tell if you look at my CV, my passion is for public service and for making the world a better place. But I thought that was a really important experience for me to understand the big levers behind the way finance moves around the world and the drivers behind it. So I love this idea of big corporations talking about climate risk because there's so much right now that companies are doing in order to make it clear how sustainable they are. And to be frank, a lot of it is greenwashing. A lot of it is marketing. And exactly, it's just talk in order to try and get customers to choose their product over another one. So what this does is it actually makes it very clear the potential problems that they have. And I really love that. And I wonder if there's a way to make that more exciting for people to look at when they're trying to make choices between different products. Because I go into the supermarket and I want to choose a tomato sauce. I'd love to know which company is actually doing a better job. But if somebody says sustainable on the label, I don't know what that means. And I study this for a living. So to get actually the risks that any of these companies have is such an important piece of data. And we will absolutely be required to disclose climate risk publicly traded companies, small business, governments, the Biden administration, and it's very clear from the Treasury Secretary through all of the agencies that touch money. The Fed has joined an effort in Europe about greening the financial system. We will see 100% required disclosure of climate risk, and we will be able to assess a company's performance. And it will mean a lot of action that looks different from the way it looks now. So you talk about government policy, essentially making companies make their climate risk public. But how can we build climate resiliency overall that isn't really dependent on what party has governmental control? In Florida, for example, So much was lost when Rick Scott dismantled the Florida Energy and Climate Commission. And that situation has happened all over the U.S. I'm sure you're well aware of these examples. And given the time limit that climate change has given us, what can we do to ensure that we don't lose all of our progress leading up to 2030, 2035, when we have a change of government? Well, I will say I was on that Florida Energy and Climate Commission when it was eradicated. So that was a very close to home experience. We also saw roller coaster positioning on climate change as candidates run to the right or to the left. I think those times are very close to being behind us. You know, we work all over the world. There isn't another government that we talk to that thinks that climate is not real. There just isn't. And so that should be reassuring on one level. The other is that Our financial system has to make internal what is currently external, and that is the cost to the environment and loss of biodiversity, the harm that we do 
to children, women, people of color. And we cannot continue to do that. We talked about this as a part of the COVID recovery. It's a chance to reset our financial system. And we need policies and practices and norms that have us valuing the things that are keeping us alive, like clean air and clean water and nature. I mean, we can't survive without it. And I think we have shown ourselves that really clearly. The other piece is that the grassroots power is so immense. And I think 2020 showed us that in ways we didn't fully understand. And the power for people to buy something differently, to protest, to boycott is really powerful. And so between the big lever pieces in the financial system and around the central banks and then the community level activism, and then I'm going to say one more thing, women in charge. If women were at 50% or more in charge of all of the places that touch this, we would not be in this situation. 100% double done, done. And so we've got to put more women in leadership to make decisions that are more sustainable for us. And that may mean that you get a 6% return in your retirement portfolio versus 13, but you'll know that the earth can continue and your grandchildren can breathe. And this is supported by a tremendous amount of data. This women in charge data is everywhere. If you look at the countries around the world that have done the best job already at combating the climate crisis, combating the COVID crisis, combating Taiwan, everything. Germany. Yep. My favorite world leader is Jacinda Ardern. <laughs> she is my favorite. And I think she's done an incredible job on COVID. She's done an amazing job on climate. And there are some countries now that have more women than men in their parliament or in their Congress. And you see the tremendous job that they're doing. And the data supports this 100%. And you have it. I have it. Everyone should go look at it. It's edifying. Absolutely. I want to wrap up here today with one more question for you. And I want to read a quote from you from Foreign Affairs. And it says, Many adaptations do not require new technology, nor do they have to pass through the political minefield of international climate action. So you're saying... The technology is already here. The technology exists and it's accessible. It doesn't require international politics. So what really is getting in the way of large-scale resiliency? It's a complicated answer and a complicated question, but I think to be as simple as possible, big-scale things like projects, and often you'll hear people say in several around the time that President Biden had his climate summit, those that talk about climate finance talk about how much money is sloshing around out there. This is not a capital problem. It's not a money problem. This is a project problem. And so we need to mobilize stakeholders at the local level to prepare themselves to receive big chunks of money to make these local adaptation interventions possible. And that means make the stakeholder environment prepared for and enabling for money to come in. And that means a lot of things, but paint the whole town's roof white, tree the entire community. If you need to move people back, you need a buyout program, put a price on it and get ready to move the money. Because oftentimes in impact investing, you talk about the last mile, but it needs to be the first mile. The first mile is get the stakeholders 
engaged and ready to govern their own adaptation and to receive the money it takes. And that's it. Amazing. So one of my favorite things about the conversation that we've had today is that you're not afraid of complexity. And so much in this climate space is either so complex that no one who doesn't have, you know, a doctorate and this is able to understand it, or so simple that it doesn't fully dive into the fact that these are complex and interrelated ideas. And so I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing, you know, these complex ideas in ways that are easy to grasp and for people to understand and actually take action on. So thank you so much for that. Thank you very much, Adam. I enjoyed it. It's my favorite topic. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please visit sustainablepartnersinc.org slash donate. Since we are a nonprofit, any little bit of funding helps us to bring you more episodes like this one. Today's episode would not have been possible without our amazing team. Producer and editor, Shelby Kaufman, and associate producer and engineer, Sophie Yu. I'm your host, Adam Met, and thanks for listening to Planet Reimagined.